Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's show, we welcome back the founder and CEO of Coho Financial, Daniel Eberhardt. Dan and I discuss his journey as a young entrepreneur growing up in a tiny British Columbia town and how he ended up launching a renewable energy company called Kineticore Renewables and how it led to his first exit to a public energy company. We dive into why Dan decided to launch Coho Financial and his decision to take on the Canadian banking industry. Dan shares how his leadership style and culture at Coho have evolved over the years as the company has grown to over 250 employees and raised over $275 million in venture funding. Lastly, Dan and I have a candid conversation about how bad the Canadian regulatory environment is for fintech companies and why innovation in the industry is being throttled by government agencies and their respective industry lobbyist groups. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's interview with Daniel Eberhard from Coho Financial. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Dan. Awesome to be here, man. You know, Dan, your journey into the entrepreneurial world is truly fascinating and one I'm super pumped to dig into. But for some of our guests who don't know who you are, it'd be great if you can give our audience a brief background on where you grew up and how you got started down your entrepreneurial path. So I grew up in a very small town in British Columbia called Windermere. It was like 800 people. My first kind of like real entrepreneurial journey was I wanted to, I liked hiking. That's what we did a lot of hiking out there. And so I uh, was trying to figure out how to get paid to do that. So ended up incorporating a, a portering company, which just meant hiking in climbing gear, video equipment gear, whatever, into the, the Rocky Mountains, which is where I grew up, which was still probably the best job I've ever had. In university, I was going to school. I was probably my third year. I was interviewing for a bunch of jobs and I went to school in Calgary. And the idea of not that there's anything wrong with this industry, but the idea of going and, and being like a supply chain manager at Husky Oil seemed terrifying to me. And so I cut the other way. I was fortunate to have a friend who had graduated a year prior who had, had a good look at wind energy and was thinking about starting a wind energy company. And and we ended up starting a wind energy company. And so it was micro wind turbines all over Saskatchewan. And so I, you know, at the age of 22, like I, I've been to like every town in Southern Saskatchewan and put out milk and cookies and tried to convince 70 year old farmers to buy wind turbines from us. And probably 99% of them said no, but we got a couple of yeses along the way. And then through that got into industrial scale wind farm development. We found this kind of government opportunity, which is a, a longer story, but that we were able to, to arbitrage and, and ended up building uh 20 megawatts worth of wind energy. So something on the order of 50 million bucks to, to build it out. We sold that business basically being shovel ready. So there's a 20 minute, 20 year agreement for the government to, to purchase that power from those plants. And uh, yeah, and, and was fortunate to, to, to exit that company. You know, you work hard, but you also have to get lucky whenever you get outcomes like that. And the, the quick journey that then brought me to Coho is you know, I, I grew up without a lot of money. I, I grew up to a single mom who worked very hard and, and she drove buses and cleaned houses and, and, you know, did a lot of things to give us a wonderful middle-class life in Canada, which is, which is a, a rare thing. As I came into my own little pool of capital and looking at, at what people do with money, pretty quickly realized that these are actually like really important decisions. It actually means retiring with 30, 40, 50% more wealth. That that was like very striking to me because it takes the same amount of work to get into a great financial product as a bad one. And I was like, wow, people are really mispricing these decisions. And then, you know, sure enough, looked at my mom's investment portfolio as I got a little more financially sophisticated. And she was in all of these like really bad financial products, IMER, mutual funds, you name it. And so that just felt really unfair to me. It felt like that was frankly kind of rent seeking in the sense that this woman who had worked very, very hard was going to have like big chunks of retirement eroded 
for no good reason. And the other thing that I did was I asked 10 of my friends for their last three months of bank statements. My brother gave me his and he had paid $85 in bank fees in three months and he didn't know it. And that's my family. And I was like, this is, this can't be an anomaly. And sure enough, you know, you go spend more time in the play in this space and you realize how common these things are. And uh, that brought me to Coho, which is like, can, can you flip this model where you actually deliver real financial democratization and, and real financial foundations and, and in doing so build a, a valuable enterprise in the, in the process that, that can hopefully, you know, challenge kind of some of the existing infrastructure in this country. Yeah, it's an amazing story. As I said, like, you know, growing up in such a small town, 800 people loving hiking, being outside and, you know, doing, you know, the fun things that we all like to do on the weekends. But you also had this, uh, I don't know, understand it, but this motivation to take on the biggest fucking problems. We're talking about like renewable energy and the banking sector at a young age. Where do you think that motivation came from? Was it seeing the hard work that your mom was putting in every day and not maybe seeing the outcomes that you wanted her to see? Almost. It was seeing the hard work that she had put in and then feeling a real sense of social responsibility. Like as much as I saw the hard work, my mom also instilled a real sense of the obligation that we had to our communities and to uh, our fellow citizens as a function of the prosperity that we had. And we didn't have like, we didn't have a lot of money, but to grow up anywhere in Canada is, is you've already kind of won the lottery, you know? And so we were fortunate to travel a little bit and, and see what different folks in the world uh, see their, some of their circumstances. And so I think, I think it definitely instilled a, a sense of responsibility in me. And it, it kind of washed through to this idea of, you always get lucky when you sell a business, but the thing that I was maybe keyed on a little earlier than most folks is like the wind energy might work or might not, but I'm never going to regret doing something like that. Cause even if you're wrong, or even if you fail, you can have, be proud of the relationship you had to the thing that you were trying to do. You know what I mean? But I, I could never have that outcome being a logistics manager at a energy at a, like a carbon oil and gas company or something. Yeah. You're really driven by the mission and also the, the, technicality of the problem, not not necessarily the monetary outcome that may come because you don't believe you can control that all the time and say luck obviously plays a role in that. But, you know, taking on renewable energy with Kineticor and then selling that to Algonquin Power, obviously you got lucky, but you worked very hard, you know, going door to door there. You know, as soon as you started to see all the fees that were evaporating or the money that was evaporating through fees in the banking sector, you obviously decided to start Coho. So first off, what would you say describes Coho as a product? And what is it that differentiates it from all the other, you know, fee hungry uh, banking service platforms out there? Maybe I'll just start with what's what's wrong with the with the current Canadian environment. And I'm actually, I actually think our Canadian banks are like wonderful storied institutions that, you know, have, have built incredible enterprises. I, I think that we have a lot of bad incentives as a function of regulatory capture. And so if you think about a bank and every quarter, a bank will have a public earnings report and they will have all these various departments. And if you take something like a credit card department, a credit card department's job is to sell more credit card debt or more credit card fees every corner. And they're going to get measured and incentivized by that. And that's actually like a very zero sum in short-term posture, especially when you think about the enormous lifetime value of a customer in banking. And so that's, that's one key insight. The other key insight is that if you think about the tens of thousands of branches and infrastructure and employees like RBC has 120,000 employees and there's six of them. We have 250 employees. The, the fact that they carry those costs across their organization means that how they have to monetize users is fundamentally because you have to 
recover those costs with the OPEX and the infrastructure costs that you have. And then so for us, watching that through to Coho is like, hey, can you kind of flip that relationship so you just really build long-term trust with users and reinforce the right kind of financial behavior so that they can have the right financial outcomes and in doing so outcompete the banks. And so what that starts with, and we, when we initially came to market, it was came to market, if you think about the 30 to 40% of these Canadians who use a debit card in this country, we, char- we didn't charge any fees, you'd get cash back on every transaction, um, and it was just a much better, simpler user experience, and you could use it outside the country and all over. And so it was just a, a much broader experience. Since then, we've got into two different ways for folks to build and improve their credit history in ways that are very different from the banks. We have a credit builder product, 100000 we're over 100,000 signups on that product. So using technology to help folks build and improve their credit history in ways that they maybe not did not have the exposure or the education or the access to. We have a lending product called Cover where we're lending for folks, you know, short-term small dollar loans. We've lent, I don't know, million plus loans at this point and nobody has ever owed us more than $5, you know? And so we're, we're able to lend these things out, but we don't do it in a way that the interest compounds or runs away and you get into like these really corrosive debt cycles. We've made it much cheaper for folks to borrow, much safer for folks to borrow. We've helped them build and improve their credit score. We now have one of the highest savings rates in the country where folks can get four and a quarter percent on their savings accounts. And that is on your like everyday balances that you spend on. So those are like, you know, the different ways that it shows up, but we really feel like we're early in the journey and, and kind of just getting started. Yeah, I should have asked you this from the beginning. Why did you call it Coho? What does it mean? People think it's like a big romantic story. It's a very mercenary decision. So you're probably familiar with the hockey equipment company called Coho, K-O-H-O. You'll know this, but when you type something into Google and there is no and there is sufficient search history, it will just route you to that thing. If there is insufficient search history, it will change what you said to the common word that it's guessing you to search out. And so Coho... We wanted something that was short. We wanted something that was phonetically simple. But Coho was also this word that had been established such that it existed with Google, but had no SEO competition because the brand had since been acquired by Reebok and Shelved. So it was really like an SEO arbitrage play that let us rank number one on day one. and, and Brilliant. And yeah, get a bunch of SEO juice. <laughs> you love the arbitrage plays. I can definitely I do love see ARBs. that here now. I do love ARBs. Okay. So let's talk about the biggest ARB is the size of your company, you know, 250 employees going up against these Canadian bands that have hundreds of thousands of employees. And the motivation is obviously very different, but I feel like the culture that you've had to build is also very different. And the motivation for what your employees are driven by is obviously very different than what a bank is. So maybe explain to us your business and leadership style and how you've been able to maintain this psychologically safe culture at Coho while working inside this, you know, financial institution industry. So look, psychological safety is such an interesting one. And I think this leads into it, but the the thing that I used to be really bashful of saying, and now I, what, what I say is I'm, I'm, I'm very direct about it, but I just, and so here's what I believe. I believe that we're the market leader in this space. We're well-funded. And if we do our job, millions of folks will have a better financial outcome. Like we can actually change a generation of financial outcomes. I think most people go their entire careers without getting opportunities like this. And and to get a chance to do this is rare and we should treat it accordingly. But the the other thing that I say is like, you should not, don't take that as gospel. Go and pressure test it and see if you believe it. And if you believe it, then come work here. And if you don't, like that's all good. But in my mind, like the best folks in the world, if you were to draw two by two of purpose-driven work, yes, no, well-paid, yes, no, the best folks in the world are in the top right quadrant where they're getting paid well to do purpose-driven work that they care about. And if you just can get like as many of those folks as you can, I think the rest kind of takes care of itself. And that leads into psychological safety because it gives you air cover to talk about all of the hard things. Like if you actually couch everything in the mission, then it's not 
me attacking you or being aggressive with you. It's like, hey, what's the best way to execute against the mission? And we always have a common ground and a common vocabulary as we talk about these things. So you have to share a lot more, I guess, to let people you know see it for themselves, I guess. How do you do that? We do a couple of things tactically that uh, are maybe supportive of this idea. And so the tactical things is that we're quite a transparent company. So after every board meeting, I sit down with the whole company, which is like pretty scary with a couple hundred people and say, here's the board materials that we went through. And like, this is what the board asked. And this is what they're worried about. And this is what they're excited about. And we try and just kind of create alignment. And I think that gives folks a lot of trust and context uh, in the business. The other thing that we do is there is no anonymous feedback at Coho. When we do town halls or anything like that, you have to put your name on something like ethical or safety concerns aside. And, and what that is really about is just like, I can't stand cynicism. And I think nothing erodes company cultures faster than cynicism. And anonymous feedback is such a fertile ground for cynical people to misrepresent the culture. And, and so I think when people put their name on it, they're just much more critical, much more thoughtful, much more nuanced. And, and it really is treating your folks like adults to put up their hand. And, and if they have a challenge that they want to address with the company, go do it, but, but be willing to put your name behind it. And so th- those are two things. And then I think the other thing just culturally that we really index on, I just think warmth is like massively underrated as a professional trait. I, I think it makes psychological safety so much easier, communication so much easier. And so we really do care about warmth uh, as a personal and, and a value at, at Coho. Yeah, I mean, those sound like radical things, but really they're just sort of table stakes now, I feel like with how much attrition there is and like the remote environment, you know, giving transparency to employees and allowing them to contribute and also see what happens behind those closed doors board meetings is really important, you know, but that's for people who are working at the company currently. But what's your approach to hiring talent to come work at Goho before you've been able to showcase those values to see if it's in them already? It's so tough, right? Because if you're like great at hiring, you'll bat 70%. And if you're bad at it, you'll bat 30%, which means like a lot of the time it doesn't work out. What, what I do have is like broad pattern matching. And again, there's some tactical things that, that we do as well. But from a pattern matching perspective, you really want to avoid ego. I just think ego results in defensiveness. And it's just like this big cultural tax that you have to deal with. And we've all encountered these people in our career. And it's just you're kind of walking on eggshells around them. And, and it just massively compresses the quality of communication in the company. Um, and so we really avoid ego. The things that I, we look for, are you low ego? Are you high horsepower? Are you a builder? And do you care about the mission? And if like you're aligned on those four things, that will get you 90% of the way there. We've batted a pretty low average when it came to like been there, done that executives who are C-levels at other companies with big shiny brands and all that kind of stuff. Like it's just, it, it, we've never really been able to bridge that gap. We do, you know, it's it's kind of a bit hokey, but the, the slope over intercept thing is, is totally true. And I'd way rather hire somebody who's hungry, who hasn't been there before than somebody who might have the experience, but is, is kind of on cruise control in their career and, and in their, <laughs> their intuitions around what it means to, to work hard. Yeah. It sounds like you prefer, prefer first time hires or first timers versus people who've been sitting in the chair a little too long and a little too comfortable. What we like to call makers versus managers, you know, it's just everyone gets the manager piece really wrong. So I guess that kind of dovetails in my next question. Like how have you as a leader changed and how has your leadership style changed since Coho's inception? I remember two conversations that were instructive. One was I was with a board member and he, uh, and we were just on a walk one day and he's like, Hey man, no one expects you to be Tim cook. Uh, and what he means by that is like, of course, 
you're not going to be like, why would you possibly think you're a good CEO? You've done it for three years or four years at the time. And like people have decades of experience and are still figuring this job out. And that actually took like a lot of pressure off me and was kind of one of those, which sounds obvious in hindsight, but like, of course, we're a leader in development. And the more honest that we can be about that, and I mean this in the in the professional performance sense, but the more like inclusive your leadership journey becomes and, and folks come on that ride with you and they're, there's way easier for them to put their hand up and say, hey, you, you fumbled this because it's actually rate of learning matters way more than any kind of raw skill set. So that was kind of one conversation. And then the other conversation is was with an executive and he said, and I would have conversations with him, which were kind of vents, which to be like, I can't believe we're doing it this way. And like Dan, the person thinks this, but Dan, the CEO has to do this. He's like, there is no Dan, the person and Dan, the CEO. There is just Dan, the CEO. What that kind of brought home for me was this idea that like, I think that it is way better to be wrong and clear than it is to be vaguely right. And this comes back to this rate of learning thing. But when you are operating from that posture, I think that you're like vague and inconsistent and your communication suffers and all of these other things where it's just like, this is the leader that I am. And I'm hopefully part of that is like being empathetic and learning and open and all those kinds of things. But you get to bring folks on that journey and then they know where they stand because there's a million versions of what it is to be a good or great leader. But I think like none of them involve vagueness or lack of confidence or, you know, bad communication. And I think all those things stem from a lack of of, of clarity about what type of leader you want to be. You know, Dan, you sound like you obviously have a ton of IQ, but your EQ is even greater, I feel, in the way that you lead your company. You know, how have you been able to integrate your emotional intelligence into your leadership style? And can you share some examples of how you've been able to navigate some challenging situations with that? We do a couple of tactical things that, that I've found instructive. And I think the hard part about talking about like EQ and self-awareness is, is you have to say those things with the recognition that like, you're never done on those journeys. But, but what I, the things that I do today, we have a couple things when it, with every weekly C-level and we spend three hours just the C-levels meeting down, we start every one of those meetings with a red, yellow, green. And so that just gives, and folks, where are you showing up today? Are you red? Are you yellow? You're green, green. I'm on my front foot. I'm cranking. Let's roll red. I'm underwater. I'm hanging on by my knuckles. Like, my wife and I are fighting or, you know, my dog's sick or whatever. And, and that just creates the conditions to show up for folks to show up as like an, a complete person. And then this is a, a super small, simple one. But if you just start every one-on-one or a lot of your, my meetings, which I do now is just like, tell me one good work thing and one good personal thing that, that takes two minutes. And it, I know so much more about folks than I otherwise would. And I'm so much more invested in their journey to bring this back to the question, the idea of like connecting with people emotionally and not that I'm great at it is just such a superpower in terms of folks feeling like they're cared for. The other thing, which is, is kind of a systems led view of this stuff is it's really easy. And, and one of the things that I learned in my journey is like, no matter what the CEO carries a really big stick. And sometimes I just want to show up like a peer and ask questions and really learn and understand in these different formats. But like, you just have to accept that the CEO and the founder is going to carry a big stick. What I have front loaded is like, I will be a CEO who goes and plays at various altitudes and goes and looks at the cohort charts and like lives at, you know, the 10 foot level of this business where I think it's important that I do, but giving folks a permission to then push me and say, Hey man, your hit rate's suffering. And you're actually creating a bunch of noise and thrash because you're looking in the wrong places and you're scaring people and you're creating panic and whatever. And so that I can keep doing my job 
and getting the comfort that I need by going and clicking around the company. But then I front loaded the idea that the team can go like, this is a bad approach, or this is the wrong way to do this or whatever, so that I get the feedback that then like lets me adjust my approach to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, I love those tactics. You know, the red, yellow, green, where are you at today is important. You know, the good thing and the personal thing, uh, work-related and personal-related obviously sets a level ground for them to open up to you when you want to get into the meat of the conversation when it creates uh, safe culture as well. But those are things that like I've learned through working with a coach and through like therapy. Those sound like things that you hear only from a therapist or a coach, not necessarily a CEO. So can you explain how maybe therapy or coaching in your life has helped impact you as a leader in the way that you share those tactics with your employees is I think is general Mattis. And he had this thing, which, which always stuck with me and his philosophy was like, and he's a reader and he talks about the importance of books. And he says, look, when I go and make mistakes, people die. And it is a abdication of my responsibility to not go and read the books that may have prevented those mistakes. Cause most mistakes have been made before. And that's obviously a very dramatic example in like, war and military, and I'm not creating that equation. But I think if you do take the careers of the folks around you seriously and the capital that you've raised seriously, then I do think you have a responsibility to try and improve not just on the business, but you as a leader, which obviously informs so many things culturally within the business. At various times, I've used coaching, I've used therapy, I've worked with a philosopher for a while. So I've used all of them and, and I've, I've, you know, YPO has some tools around this kind of stuff. I'm not a member of YPO anymore. And I think all of, all of these things are, are super useful in really understanding what is happening in the business and what is happening in your culture. There's another guy, his name is Jerry Colonna, and he's the CEO and founder of a group called The Reboot, which is arguably the most high, you've probably heard of them. They're like kind of the highest profile Silicon Valley coaching type group out there. And I remember listening to, to him talk once and his posture is like, whatever pain that you have as a human being will show up in your company. If your company culture will ultimately be a reflection of you as a founder. And so like try and build some emotional awareness around what you are, because that will wash through and it has washed through. I've made tons of mistakes in this capacity, but I just think it's like such a thing that a lot of founders and CEOs and, and executives, frankly, fail to price in. Uh, is one, their responsibility to their team in terms of getting better and two, how those things tend to creep into their work. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent that your childhood and like your upbringing impacts your professional life because let's face it, you're spending, I don't know, eight to 12 hours a day in these professional environments. And then, you know, the rest of the time with your family, it's all going to bleed into each other eventually. Uh, you can't just shut it off when you walk into the office or, you know, into your home office where your kids are screaming outside your door all the time. It's very hard to turn it off and on. So how do coaches play a role at Coho? I'll tell you just as a quick aside, and I'll come to your question. I, I speak at university sometimes, and I always, I think this is instructive of this. I speak at university sometimes, and one of my favorite things to do is I ask the university students. I call this the anonymity heuristic. And I ask the students, I say, I close your eyes, put up your hand when you visualize exactly where you want to be in your career, you've achieved everything, you've done all the things that you set out to do and whatever. Cool. Now, I want you to pretend that you've done that thing, but now nobody knows about it and you've done it in total anonymity and you can never talk about it. Do you still want to do that thing? And like 60% of kids will put their hands down, which means 60% of kids are actually not in love with the work and the outcome and the, the, the relationship to the work. They're in love with the status or the ego or their relationship to peers as a function of achieving that thing. And that's like a hugely important thing to try and figure out when you're 22 
And I'm sure you've seen a lot of this and not when you're 65. And I think that that is like, those kinds of things are just big directional career unlocks that again, like, cause a lot of folks, when we grow up in certain ways and our parents have expectations or cultural expectations or whatever those things are, like we end up kind of making some, some really low quality decisions around some really big decisions in our life. I love that. I think, yeah, back to my first job working like on Wall Street, I was so proud to tell people what I did. And then when I started working, you know, in in tech and, and finance, people asked me what I did. I was like, I help small businesses. You know, like it was like, I didn't even need to care about what it sounded like because I was so excited and passionate about what I was doing for myself. I think it's because a lot of young people don't speak to enough older people who are successful and ask them what, you know, they're excited by. And, you know, a lot of successful older people just say nothing. Like, yeah, uh, this is what I did. Well, like a lot of, also a lot of successful people will give like the terrible advice of go follow your dreams. And it's like, it's so easy to say that when you're on the other side of being successful, you know what I mean? But you and I, and and you see this, you see a lot of people who have like made money and had, and and achieved and like check that box, but are not happy people. The happiest people are the ones who are uh, able to solve a massive problem and be driven by a mission in their own mind. Yeah. Look, I mean, I mean, John Stuart Mill like calls this, but he calls it a free and vigorous life. Like, I think that's, that's what is a good thing to aspire to. Sorry. I know you asked a question about coaching and therapy and we're off track. That's okay. Yeah. Like it's dovetails back to the question. Like, you know, so you obviously have gone through a lot of coaching and therapy and training to keep your mind healthy about those things. How do you instill that with coaches at Coho? I mean, coaches are such a, such a, high ROI investment for, for a couple reasons. And originally I got coaching just because I thought that I, and I was and am like an incomplete leader. And so coaching was a good way to augment for the fact that the team had to put up with like somebody who'd never done the job before and was going to make a ton of mistakes. And I was like, at least I'll get some value from the coach, if not from me. Here's, here's what has surprised me about coaching. If you think about the math, one full-time coach can roughly coach 40 people. So then you're like, okay, so that's going to increase the salary of those folks two and a half percent on average. Will these folks stay around two and a half percent longer? Will they be two and a half percent more productive? Will they have two and a half percent better conversations? A hundred percent. Like it's not even close. I, I think it's probably like an order of magnitude return. And so that's kind of one thing. The other thing that it does is it creates a sort of conversational lubricant. Information flows easier in a company. Coaches have this kind of like ethereal sense of what's happening in the company and have like, you know, they don't speak to specifics. Obviously there's trust things that you have to manage, but they, they do, they can get a directional sense of where the wind's blowing culturally. It's a big recruiting tool. Cause I think a lot of people care about their careers and, and the idea that they get to go work with a coach and uh, it, it helps it when some talented candidates and then just another kind of data point. And there's some selection bias here, but you know, something like 60 to 70% of our internal promotions are using coaching and co-op. Fantastic. I love the way you've broken it down and sort of the, the immediate impact you get. I think for us, you know, seeing some of our first time founders getting coaching, you're right. It just accelerates their personal development, but also their employees development because they are better leaders towards their employees, their employees become better employees. And then that just kind of ripples through the organization, but you've also quantified it, which is really interesting. Does there, is there a platform that you offer people to sign up through? Like how do these coaches come to you and to your employees? So we, we hired, our, so we hired our first coach at 40 employees. Her name's Vicky. She's on mat leave right now. And she's built this out. So when I tell the data, I'm like, I, I, I want you to, you tell me what the ROI is of this program. Like, I think my intuition is that it's good and, and we can justify it. But I think if you can do this, then you can make the case. And the other, th- like I'm a, 
I like to kind of think of these things as systems, right? And so if we have a thousand employees, how many coaches do we need? How does that scale? How do we think about the ROI and, and all those kinds of things? And so uh, she's kind of built this out and we've collected the data along the way. And some of this stuff was, we thought we were going to discover. And some of these things we just discovered on the way and had not really considered before. That's interesting. And also, I'm sure that the people that are receiving the coaching are not only better in their professional life, but also their personal life. You know, they must have hopefully health, healthier uh, personal lives. And speaking about personal life, you know, and values, obviously, you've rec- uh, spoken about the importance of being a dad. You know, how has that impacted your professional life? And what do you think having the responsibility of both your employees, but also your family has done for you as a leader of your company? I think it's made me way more well-rounded in the sense that there was a time where it's probably not an exaggeration to say like 70% of my hours and 95% of my mental energy was applied towards work. And that was probably half a decade. And now I can have like a pretty bad day at work and my three-year-old daughter just, she doesn't care. You know what I mean? And so you you kind of do get a bit bulletproof because it really forces you to contextualize like, oh, a bad day is not really a bad day. So it has made me more well-rounded in that sense. It's given me a lot more empathy for for different ways that folks want to live their lives. It's it's kind of like a, it's a platitude, but I just mean a lot of our best employees at Coho are parents or a lot of them are remote or whatever, you know what I mean? And there's like, I, I can totally see now through my own life, how you can still be a very competent professional while also having big, important other parts of your life. And like before I was, I was probably a little bit maniacal and, and sort of monolithic and that work was just my entire life. And, and now I actually think I have a, hopefully a more like empathetic and um, posture towards. Yeah, I think the empathy part is definitely uh, important. I mean, I'll ask you for some advice as a, a father of a two-year-old and a one-month-old. Oh, congratulations. I find that, you know, because, thank you. I think that the condensing of the hours, um, you know, obviously when the kids come home and stuff, uh, and then when I need to get back online are a little bit kind of tug of war stressful because you hear the pings coming in and you've got some missed calls and things you need to do. And there's just so many things you have to catch up on. Like, how have you been able to turn it off in your brain for when you need to obviously have time with the kids from like four 30 to seven 30 before you get back into it? I will say this as like a, somebody who fails at this all the time. Um, it is, but, but I think even in that failure, right, it's, it's a muscle that you practice and, and that in itself is, is a useful part of, of getting better at these kinds of things. So what I have found in my own posture against these things and, and the way that I operate is what I call acceptance and enoughness. And these two things that I've tried different ways to create that, that boundary between work and stuff like that. And I, I, I just don't, try to anymore. I think it's kind of like a a false promise in the sense, like some days work's just going to be brutal and you just got to bite that bullet. And some days the kids are going to be brutal and you got to bite that bullet. And some days both those things are going to inflect at the right time, but at the same time, you got to bite that. The the acceptance and the enoughness posture is, is one where it's like, whatever is happening, if I'm willing to accept it, it takes a sting out of a lot of that kind of stuff. And it makes it way easier to navigate. So I'm not resisting that my kids are fighting. I'm not resisting that I'm getting 50 pings or whatever that happens to be. And then the second part of this enoughness is like the idea that I've already got enough in my life and that I'm already, cause I've never had a lot of success with like gratitude practices or meditation and those kinds of things. But the idea that my life is already enough and I kind of takes a lot of the fear out of both of these dimensions of my life. And again, I say that very much from the perspective of someone who does not have this figured out. I have a three-year-old and a five-month-old, so I'm, I'm 
barely more practice than you are at this. <laughs> I like that though. It sounds like you're content and embracing whatever gets thrown at you at every single day and just like, let it be basically. And whatever will be, will be. Yeah, dude. It's just, we're along for the ride. If, if you treat it like an adventure and not like a chore, I actually think that like, there's a big framing opportunity here that at least for me m- makes it more energizing and less kind of taxing. Yeah, I appreciate that feedback. You know, I got to switch gears for a sec to just get us back onto the financial industry that you are trying to tackle. And obviously the current markets that we're seeing right now, you know, what are your thoughts on the current state of the fintech innovation uh, industry in Canada? You know, where are we leading and where the hell are we way behind? I don't think we're leading anywhere. Thank you for saying it. I say this as somebody who fully accepts and prices in the market realities. And we didn't, I'm not complaining when I say any of this, we know what the market realities are in Canada and it's our job as entrepreneurs to go and figure out how to navigate those. So like, but I think that we have a real failure in Canada. And I think that we do not do a good job of talking about it. And so what do I mean by that? There's actually, there's something called, this is a, a bit technical, but there's something called the learner index. And the learner index is a, metric of market competitiveness. Basically zero is really good and 0.5 is really, really bad. And one is the highest that it gets. Up until 2008, we had a very competitive banking market where it was like kind of sitting between 0.1 and 0.2. And then in 2008, the crisis hit. Basically that index went from like a 0.15 to like a 0.5. And it is it changed dramatically. And we all of a sudden opted into this banking market model where we have given these folks enormous regulatory capture, and we have done a bad job of quantifying the downstream market impacts of that regulatory capture. Just to make this concrete, how that shows up for users is, cool, we pay some of the highest bank fees in the world. Okay, fine, not that interesting. We regularly see folks at Coho who get three to five NSFs a day on the order of like 150 to $250. And these are not folks with $80 to their name. They're folks making 70, 80, 100K a year, right? Totally like unregulated dark market. The number one investment product in this country is still a high MER mutual fund, which is objectively a bad product, which will corrode 30 to 40% of folks' retirement. That is a statement of fact. And I can pick any financial vertical I want. And there is this kind of like hidden corrosive pricing posture in all of these products that I think we have not done a good job. We as in a fintech community and founder community have not done a good job of making Ottawa aware of. Yeah. The regulatory capture that you speak about, let's just like lay it out there, what we see every day in our current bills as consumers, banking fees, telecom fees, real estate fees, tax fees, you know, uh, sales fees, all those types of things that just get layered on top. It's like when you show up at the cashier and they say, would you like to pay 20% on top of this $1.50 coffee as a tip? That's what you're talking about when you say regulatory capture. Yeah, that's exactly. So here, here's like a more acute example for, for Coho. We're at scale. We've got a million accounts. We're doing billions in probably break a $10 billion a year transaction run rate this year. Like there's real volume going through Coho. Small compared to the banks, but it's not, it's not trivial. When people add funds to Coho today, we call it the first fund fail rate. That still fails three to 5% of the time. For a long time, we operated with a 15 to 25% first fund fail rate. That is a problem that only exists in Coho. If you compare in Canada, if you compare that to like the, the EU, Revolut went from founding to a full bank license in like seven months, like full payments integration, full operating license. And here we are at scale in market since 2017, doing billions a year, 
and we still don't have a reliable working payment engine because we live in this kind of like regulatory gray area where you're not a bank and you're not a FI and the whole regulatory infrastructure is, is organized around and, and contemplates only the existence of FIs, uh, financial institutions. You know, I could, I could go on and on about examples like that. I, th- I, I think that, that where we have ended up though is like Ottawa has a, and this, this has been uh, debunked in World Bank study after World Bank study, but the Canadian Bankers Association and has done a great job in convincing Ottawa that competition and systemic stability are opposing forces. And in fact, the exact opposite is true. Competition is a necessary and essential part of systemic stability. And Ottawa does not yet understand that. And that's on us as founders and CEOs and everything else. And so we live in this regulatory environment where we've given these banks enormous regulatory capture, but then not washed that through to protect the folks who are then subjected to the market capture dynamics that they have. Super interesting. I feel like the open banking debate has been going on for far too long, but like for some reason, the crypto regulatory market has been more fluid uh, and more progressive in Canada than the actual like physical, you know, fiat banking world that we operate in. But uh, we'll leave that for another episode. You know, just you touched on the scale part of Coho. You know, Coho raised a million dollar seed round in 2015. You've gone on to raise over 275 million from the likes of Portage, Drive Capital, TTV, and Eldridge. How is your journey of fundraising uh, and managing capital in today's environment changed over the years? You know, given the current investment climate as well. The the current investment climate has been talked to death. It's it's you know it's profitability over over revenue and all those kinds of things, and 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 that's very much true. And the way that we kind of talk about this as Coho is like, if you actually build for 2030 and 2040, and that's what we're trying to do here, this isn't even the last market correction that we're going to see. And so this is really about like, what is the right posture for this existing climate? And I think that the thing that's a little bit different about Coho relative to some of the other companies is like, we feel like we're the market leader. And if we win, there, there is a market window here where if we win, we can build a $10 billion business. And you kind of have to price in the opportunity to be to win the market. And so we've been a little bit more risk on in our cash burn profile. And time will tell if that was the right posture or not. You can, the, the market is one lens on this, but also so is the stage, right? And so now we're at, as you say, we've raised $275 million. Like you have to show a believable path to profitability, unit economics, the right kind of cohort behaviors, all of those kinds of things, because the ability to go and raise capital when you are a seed investor is like, or a seed founder is like purely narrative. But at Series D, it's a much more robust, now you have millions of data points, which folks can comb through and understand what's actually happening in the business. And so I, I think that we've built a, you know, we're fortunate that we operate this way, but we built like a really robust cohort engine at Coho where everything gets, you know, the cohorts show the right trends. And I think it's just kind of really refocused us, not maybe not even refocused, but it's it's restressed the importance of the cohort behavior that then washes through to the gross margin and then washes through the profitability. And obviously that just has to be a more believable story in this fucking environment. Right. I mean, so the story part is sort of like been talked about to death. And uh, we understand that you can't just sell a story anymore in these markets, especially at the capital you've raised. But you obviously must have some, you know, visions uh, for product development or market expansion. Like, walk us through what Coho may look like over the next three to five years. Uh, and will it be beyond Canada? It is unlikely that we are in a different country in five years. And it's a 0% chance that we're in a different country in three years. The reason that I say that is I think that we, again, are the market leader. And I think that there is a big opportunity cost and a big distraction risk um, attached with going international. So that's thing one. And thing two, I see no reason to think that we could win in those other markets. 
and you know, they're, they all have similar offerings to Coho. And we have seen that every developed country in the world has domestic winners in this space. We will definitely stay in Canada. I, I can't see us unless we find some unique distribution hook or some something like that, that we think gives us kind of a compelling arbitrage reason to go into these other countries. I think it's going to be tough to sell. What can you expect from Coho? Look, I think that what we found is it is difficult to operate as a non-regulated player in this entity, uh, in this in this country, excuse me. And so while we've done like a bunch of great things around letting folks build credit and letting folks borrow cheaply, and you know we're now starting to let folks build wealth with these high interest savings accounts, we'll get into trading and investing in those kind of dimensions soon. You actually need kind of a, a full stack. Um, and I think that we've been early on that journey and, and we should have some more concrete announcements to share in the next couple months there. But look, I think our belief is you need a seat at the table. And, and if you're only competing on the surface level, which is like the rate or the fees or something, your competitive edge is very narrow. And you actually need to like couple that thing with real infrastructure. It matters in banking. And then that's how you actually create durable competitive advantages. And if we had a, you know, just hypothetically, if we had a full bank license today, the pricing power that we would have on our products, which are already, I think, some of the strongest price products in the market, would be enormously different. I think we would smoke some of the other things in the market with what we could do. Yeah, it's interesting. I appreciate your honesty. You know, obviously, we've seen a lot of fintech players go beyond the borders of Canada with expanded services and then either fall flat on their face without naming names or sell off those businesses and come back to HQ you know, in Canada. And you guys have stayed really true to focusing on what you can do best before expanding to those other platforms or products. You know, What advice would you give to other aspiring entrepreneurs looking to take on some traditional industries like you have in the fintech space if they were getting started today? Just start. Uh, and like start with actually really, this is going to sound maybe a bit general, but I think a lot of people trick themselves into thinking they're doing work by like researching or talking to people just build a product and get it in people's hands. And I promise you it will suck. What I have found in wind energy and in banking and all these things is like from, from afar, these look like incredibly well-run, impenetrable industries with enormous barriers to entry. And just it's, if anything, the closer you get to these bigger industries, you're like the, in, the inverse of that is true. But until you're actually out there and building and getting feedback and iterating and recognizing those opportunities, you actually will fail to understand the nuance of your industry. And so I think a lot of people busy themselves with busy work and it's just like, just go start, just go build something. And and by the way, that that has the added effect of like, when you build stuff, you start to get a gravitational pull and people will who are also building things will be gravitationally pulled to other builders. And that's actually how you build your network, which is the network is the thing that compounds over the 10, 20, 30, 40, year, 40 years of your career that like really drives outcomes more than anything else. Um, because the network creates the opportunity. And so you may go build something and it may fail and suck, but you will connect with other builders. And odds are some of those builders will figure out what their building is going to work. And then they'll know, oh, Matt, I remember building with him and Matt Crush and he was hungry and, and he went hard. And that is actually a really good career strategy. Yeah. The old, the old saying of not releasing a product fast enough. And if it's not something you're embarrassed about, or if you haven't released a product that you're not embarrassed about, you didn't release it fast enough. So when we launched in 2017, we didn't have chips on our card and it was like a white minimalist card and people had to go sign on it. And we thought it was like white and sleek and minimalist. And people like, they thought it was a hotel key. You know what I mean? Like, like people, it was, it was brutal, but you know, that's where you start and that's fine. And you got it. It is what it is. Look, the, the only, the, the other thing that I would say, and it comes back to kind of where we started and going full circle here is, but like the only variables that you can control in your career, are like, are you proud of the work and do you care about the people you do it with? 
And like, that's a regret minimization framework for a good career. I think there is a million reasons why you might succeed or fail for good or bad reasons. There's always externalities that, that could inform like whether it's successful or not, but you can control those two variables. That feels like a good place to start. Yeah. Besides people thinking you were a hotel chain uh, selling hotel cards, what's the other best feedback you've received from customers in the early days? So we had some folks who thought we were just a front for the government, like they they were like conspiracy theorists uh, who thought that we were just doing this to scrape scrape uh, information for the government. Look, we 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 do this. This is actually part of the thing that comes back to the mission. But a couple weeks ago, we just played a video, and it's like a bunch of users talking about our, our product, and you know we. While we have a very long way to go, we've helped a lot of folks build and improve their credit history. We've helped a lot of folks start businesses. We've helped a lot of folks pay down college debt. Like, those, those, And we try and keep those stories at the center of what we do and talk about them every week because they're just so powerful and such a good reminder of this, this stuff's hard. And so sometimes those things are, are the things that they keep the gas pedal down. Yeah, I love those like real world testimonials. That's fantastic that you share those. You know, I got to ask, given that you work in the banking industry, you must get calls from a lot of bankers all the time. First off, what's your relationship like with other bankers in this industry or in this country? Uh, and do you get shopped a ton of like shitty fintech deals for you to guys to look at acquiring all the time? Definitely the latter is yes. We've got sucked into a few of them, but not pulled the trigger. Look, it depends on the banker. That, that That's what this kind of was one of my learnings through this. But you think of these folks as like the big oligarchy, oligarch, oligopolistic banks. They're just a bunch of people who like have mortgages and kids and bills to pay and, and you know, most of these folks recognize that the system is like suboptimal for sure. I don't think they recognize the degree of it, but they totally get that like the banks are dragging their feet on open banking. They totally get that like a $50 NSF is not a good product. There are a few people who are staunchly anti-fintech and, and those that's fine. But but oh, by and large, people are welcoming and receptive and, and just kind of want to see a competitive ecosystem. As I said, it's mostly about bad incentives, not bad people. I agree with that completely. Last question before we jump into our fast favorites. If you weren't a tech founder, what would you be doing with your life? I got into founding companies because it seemed like the closest thing to like a pirate or an adventurer or an explorer. And it just seemed like a good path that let me enjoy risk. Um, so it would be one of those things. I don't think people are pirates anymore, but that seemed like a, a probably a glorified in hindsight, but, but being a pirate seems pretty great. Yeah. I don't see you on like the sea shepherd, but I could see you like, you know, as a Nat Geo photographer or something with your kids or something. Yeah. Something like that would be, would be pretty special. All right. Before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off your favorite podcast, Sam Harris. Nice. Next, your favorite newsletter. Probably wait, but why? Perfect. Next favorite tech gadget. Yeah, I thought about this one. It was the Aura Ring. I'm actively de-optimizing, which is maybe a good answer to the trend question, but I, I don't I don't have any good tech gadgets anymore. I was an Aura Ring fan for a long time. I gave up the Aura Ring fan. I'm now onto the uh, Whoop, but we'll see how long I last. Next is your favorite new trend. So I too, and just reminded me, the idea, I think folks are starting to realize that you can over-optimize your life and there are folks who are like actively de-optimizing and I don't want to measure it and I don't want to try and feel like this is, a, you know, and so I think that notion of that de-optimize movement is, is important. And then the second one is I really love the caliber and the vigor of the outsiders that are running in the U.S. political race this year. Obviously, Trump was a lunatic, but I think that he paved the way for outsiders as a playbook and that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. I mean, listening to Vivek, even though some people don't agree with everything he's saying, he uh, is a complete outsider and Trump paved the way for that, but he's got some incredible thoughts. And, you know, for people on the inside saying, you know, shut up small, you know, small person who's never been in our system before, 
no experience uh, is a terrible strategy. So I agree with that one. It actually has much less to do with what his message is than just the fact that, that it creates the space for intellectually honest people. And Vivek will like talk his book. And the more people talk their book, the better sense we can get of the politicians. 100%. Next is your favorite book. Speaking of books. Tough one. Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant is my favorite book. What's it about besides lessons of history? Which history? So Will and Ariel Durant was this husband and wife team that wrote, and they wanted to give everybody a foundation, or, or, excuse me, an education. And they said, what is all the information that would create a great, great education? This was like 40 or 50 years ago. And they wrote 13 volumes, uh, which are like 1300 pages each. And they're massive and they're incredibly well-written. And it starts with like lessons of the Orient, which I know you're not supposed to say that, but that's the title of the book. And then it goes through. I haven't read them. But then they condensed all of those things into one page that is one book that is 100 pages long. And it just like gave me such a healthy understanding of this moment in history and of the arc of history. And it's only 100 pages. And it's just like the most impactful 100 pages I've ever read. I love that. It's counterintuitive to your de-optimizing comment, but you optimize reading 1300 pages per uh, book into a Coles Notes version of it. So I respect that. Uh, and last but not least is your favorite life lesson. Yeah, it's got to be my the one that I've got the most utility of is just watching how hard my mom worked. Uh, it's the thing that has probably been the most useful for me in, in my own career. Well, it sounds like it's worked very well for you. So thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with Dan Eberhard, founder and CEO of Coho. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, Hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague who'd benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, Keep disrupting and innovating.